25 years ago, I served on a jury in Seattle, Washington. I have a long history of jury service. Um, I understand that if you vote, that is how they use, that's the pool they use to get you, you know, into the jury pools. I vote all the time, so I serve, um, have been called to serve in jury duty a number of times, uh, have had a long history of it. The, the first kind of dramatic thing that I think ever happened, I was called to serve on a jury in Anchorage, Alaska. Dawn and I were living there. And um, I was put in the jury box, and they were asking people if they knew anybody related to the trial. And they asked this, another lady in the box, they said, do you know anybody here? And she said, yes, and she pointed at me. She said she knew me. And so they asked, how do you know him? And she said, he's my pastor. And then their question was, do you think he would influence you at all? And she said, oh, no, not at all. Uh, <laughs> a little shocking. Uh, but I was immediately dismissed from the jury. And she stayed on. Interesting. Uh, I've been called to serve a number of times, never made it. Uh, it, By the way, if you want to get out of jury duty, just tell them them you're a pastor. I think that's your your easy out. But 25 years ago, Dawn and I were living in Seattle, and I was called to serve in a jury in Seattle. So went down to the courthouse, was there, uh, was put in the jury box, and as I was sitting in the jury box, it's 25 years ago, okay, in Seattle, Washington, important facts. I was in the jury box 25 years ago, and they asked this question. How many of you have any idea what gender dysphoria is? 25 years ago, Seattle, Washington, I was the only person who raised my hand. Um, I happened in a counseling program, I knew that gender dysphoria is this distress that a person feels when uh, they feel like there's a a mismatch between um, their felt gender identity and their biological gender at birth, and they feel a tension between that in some way. That's gender dysphoria. 25 years ago, in Seattle, Washington, I was the only person who raised my hand that I had any idea what it was. 25 years later, Conway, Arkansas, my guess is every one of you have at least a vague idea of what gender dysphoria is, because it has become... Um, such a common reality in our world to, to grapple with these issues. Um, our, our world has, um, has really shifted, and I believe significantly, in the last 25 years. So much so um, that a couple of weeks ago, um, I was listening to a podcast about some of these issues of how to uh, deal with these things in the church, and um, the, the topic became autogenophilia. It's a thing that is now labeled, okay? It's labeled autogenophilia, and it is this. It is a person who is aroused when they imagine themselves as the other gender. That's not just something that happened. It is something we now have a name for, and you can identify with it and go, oh yeah, that's me. Um, (laughs) Our world has really shifted, in what's going on and, and what has become common knowledge and acceptable and, and understandable. Now, I want to I pause because um, today's passage is going to address a number of issues. And if you struggle with some of these issues, if you struggle with some form of gender dysphoria, um, if you struggle with some of the other things that are going to arise in this passage, sexual violence, if you struggle with... Um, a hard, hard marriage that is really a difficult place to be. 
if you struggle with a father who is far less than what you would have wanted him to be. All of these issues are in the passage, and I want to say there's grace for you. Um, the Bible is not silent. It doesn't ignore all of these difficult things that are going on in these passages. This passage is going to be uh, very pointed. Um, in fact, the rabbis, they taught this passage, but this is one of the passages that the rabbis said, don't, don't use it in your uh, public readings. Don't, don't read this one publicly uh, in, in, the, in the synagogues. But the Bible's not going to be silent on these issues. Um, what we have at this point in the book of Judges is the world has totally turned upside down. Um, significantly from, from a people who God has led out of Egypt, and they have worshipped him. They quickly turned to idolatry. But he's brought them into the promised land. And in this 380 years in the promised land, everything has gone wrong. And this is the culmination of everything going wrong. Um, the reason that it is going wrong is, is seen in this repeated thing that happens at the end of the book in chapter 17, 18, 19, and 21, where we read, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. By the way, that's the reason that we have changed in 25 years from only one person in Seattle, Washington, who knew what gender dysphoria was in a, in a jury box, to everybody understands it now. It's because there's no more any recognition of, of the Lord as king. And everyone is free to do what is right in their own eyes. The passage says, repeats, there's no king, there's no king, there's no king, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Lawson Younger frames this really well when he says this. This refrain emphasizes through a double entendre, that during the period of the judges, there was no physical king, one intention, but more importantly, there was no spiritual king. Yes, they didn't have a king yet. That's going to wait for another about 50 years until Saul shows up. But Saul is the king that the people chose. It's not God's choice. That was David. God recognized they needed a king. In fact, back in Deuteronomy, about 400 years before the period of time we're talking about here. About 400 years, God gave them some instructions in Deuteronomy. He says this, when you enter the land the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settle in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Don't put a foreigner in there. He's got to be one of yours. The passage goes on to give his qualifications. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests, the spiritual leaders. It is to be with him, the king, and he, the king, is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. When there is a king, he's supposed to be there following the law, living an example, and leading them to follow the law. They didn't have a physical king, but they didn't even have any recognition of God as the king. Kenneth Way says it this way, Israel certainly lacks a God-fearing monarch who can help people uphold the Torah, but more important, Israel lacks a basic understanding of their identity under the rule of the divine king. The thing that has shifted in Israel is they, they, there's no king. They don't, they don't have their identity set as the rule of the divine king, and so therefore everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. 
And in our world today, we have no identity that sees ourselves as under the rule of the divine king, and now everyone can do what is right in their own eyes. And it leads to the chaos and the corruption and um, the conflict, the violence that we're going to see in these passages. Now, um, a couple of weeks ago, I I tried to illustrate this with uh, an old classic song by Frank Sinatra. Uh, There was no king in the land, and everyone did what is right in their own eyes. Let me try to be a little more contemporary for you. Uh, Tom Petty, it's good to be king, if only for a while. Uh, A little bit more contemporary, 1994, if you're a Tom Petty guy. Or maybe a little bit more, maybe not current enough for most of the people over here on the right-hand side. But Bon Jovi in 2000 said, it's my life. It's good to be king, and it's my life. I'll do what I want to do. And what happens when that happens... (laughs) is all of the things we see unfold in Judges 19. I've got a few resources back there at the Connection Center for you online. One of them is uh, an interesting background on the discovery about 100 years ago of a place called Ugarit. Um, Accidentally, uh, a farmer was plowing up a field and he uncovered something that led to the the discovery of an entire, basically a, a civilization that is dated right at the time of the Judges. It's a little bit north of where the land of Israel is. It's in Syria. Uh, Ugarit, there's a whole language, but a treasure trove of stuff was discovered. It gives a lot of background to uh, financial workings and a lot of background that's kind of similar to what we see in the book of Judges. But one of the things that is most um, amazing in the discovery of Ugarit um, and the language Ugaritic um, is just the perversity of their religion. Um, the perversity of their religion is reflected in Judges 19 through 21. <laughs> and uh, that article gives you a little bit of background on that. There's some applications like I've done before, uh, a series of them from Bob Chisholm's commentary, and then uh, an article that's really pointed by Lawson Younger on the decline of morality in the Israelite civilization. So there's some resources on the web at the Connection Center for you if you'd like them. Just to remind you real quickly, um, we are, have, have studied the book of Judges, and most people think of Judges really as to these main six Judges that are pretty famous, but there are 12 Judges. Some of them uh, we don't, haven't heard much about. But the book begins with this double introduction, and in that introduction, all of the threats to the people are external. It is the, the external tribes um, that are pushing in on them and, and oppressing them, the Midianites, the Philistines, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Canaanites, all of them are pressing. All the threats are external. And the problem of idolatry is external as well. They're, they're leaving the worship of the Lord to go and worship Baal and Ashtaroth and Molech. When you get to the end of the book, it is changed. It's no longer oppression from the outside. What we're going to see in our passage is it's going to be civil war. They're killing themselves. And the, the threat is not going to other places to worship other gods, but bringing the worship of other gods and, and that mentality into the worship of the Lord. The, the threat has changed. At the beginning of the book, you start with, first of all, their failure in war. They, they failed to drive out all of these tribes, and because the tribes were still around, they fell into idolatry. When you get to the end of the book... It reverses. And in the last two weeks, in chapter 17 and 18, we saw the idolatry that has crept into the worship of the Lord. A Levite's making his private uh, shrine. 
the tribe of the Danites hire a private pastor. And then what we're going to see in 19 through 21 is the war that results because all of the immorality, uh, because of the idolatry that has sunk in. In in the second part of our double conclusion, we looked at chapters 17 and 18 for a couple of weeks. We're going to spend a couple of weeks looking here at chapters 19 through 21. Um, the, The passage moves from perversity, the progression of their immorality, that's what we're going to see today, to violence as a result of that. The passage ends really violently, but then it gets worse, and it's genocide, and the Israelites wipe out one of their tribes. But then it ends in kind of a a good way as they try to recover. You have the sin, the overreaction, and then the recovery, but in the recovery, you see God's sovereignty that he's still going to accomplish his purpose. So it ends in in, um, a recovery mode. Um, in a number of weeks, when I get back from a mission trip to the Czech Republic, uh, we're going to jump into the book of Ruth, because Ruth is really, it's the antidote to judges. The first line of Ruth says, in the time when the judges ruled. Um, There was this family that got it right in the middle of all this chaos. There was a family that was faithful to the Lord. But today, what we're going to look at is this last conclusion. There's two conclusions, the idolatry conclusion, 17 and 18, the war conclusion with all the perversity that leads to the war in 19 through 21. And what we're going to see is is one event that throws the country into civil war. Lawson Younger says it this way, here in an almost unbelievable manner, the problem between one man and one woman leads to a full-scale civil war. The conflict literally between a man and his wife is going to Topple the dominoes so that in the next chapter, there's going to be a civil war so that in the last chapter, they have to figure out how to keep the uh, tribe of Benjamin alive. Mary Evans says this, one of the first stories in Judges is that of the marriage of Caleb's daughter, an honored woman with a voice who's valued in her marriage and treated well by her father and her husband, Othniel. This last story begins with a tragic story of another marriage, which is completely the opposite in every way. This book has completely turned upside down. In chapter 1, you've got a good marriage. Um, This woman, we know her name, Aksa. She is honored by her husband, and she is honored by her father. She has a voice, and she has a name. Here in this last passage, we're going to meet a woman. She has no name. She's mistreated by her husband and mistreated by her father. Because everything has turned upside down. Because... Israel had no king, and everyone was doing what is right in their own eyes. In fact, the book is completely reversing from Judges chapter 1 to 19. There are these parallels, but it's interesting. Um, In chapter 1, a king's thumbs are are removed, but he's he's a a Canaanite king. He's a pagan king. There's an Israelite woman who gets dismembered in this passage. Um, Jerusalem, they they have an initial conquest of it, but now it's in foreign control, so much so that the guy doesn't want to go there. There's a married couple that's honored in chapter 1, a married couple that's apostate in chapter 19. A woman is on a donkey in chapter 1, and her voice is heard, and she's well-treated. A woman's on a donkey in chapter 19, she's not heard, and she is totally mistreated. The tribe of Benjamin intermarries with the Jebusites, but the tribe of Benjamin is involved in gang rape in chapter 19. Um, the, the contrast is, is, is remarkable. This passage is trying to show this is how bad it gets. Ken Way says, 
while the Levites are conspicuously absent in chapter 1 through 16, they are notoriously present in 17 to 21. I'm pausing on this one because I want you to understand the Levites are the spiritual leaders. And in all of the war and idolatry and all the stories of the judges, there's no mention of Levites, no spiritual leaders. It's just these judges who are, who are kind of commanders and they're, uh, they're local rulers, chieftains. But there's no spiritual leaders. But here, where it shows how it has gotten this bad, the Levites are all over the place. They're the main players in it. The spiritual leaders are the ones who didn't prevent all of this from happening because they were not teaching the truth. Um, our passage today in Genesis 19 is a really troubling passage. Um, it is a difficult passage. Like I said, the rabbis uh, were, uh, were willing to teach it, but they didn't read it publicly. Um, because this passage becomes a paradigm for evil, uh, about 400 years later when Hosea is preaching, Hosea uses this story about the violence and the sin that takes place in Gibeah. That's the city we're going to see today. And he says this uh, to his generation, they have sunk into corruption as in the days of Gibeah. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. When he, when he evokes Gibeah, it is, yes, horrible sins and punishment. One chapter later, Hosea says this, since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. Will not war again overtake the evildoers of Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them and put them in bonds for their double sin. Um, there's double sin in Gibeah. You'll see it. Um, and, and what God says is, when, when I look at my people, you're still involved in this idolatry, this, this lack of recognition of me as the king and doing what is right in your own eyes. And you know what? You're going to pay for it. And, and I want to say to our church today. <laughs> to the degree that we don't recognize that God is our king and live as image bearers of him, not trying to make him take care of me, but me serving and bringing glory to him, and to the degree that we do things that are right in our own eyes, judgment is coming. Judgment has come on nations and churches that are throwing off God's authority, and are th doing things that are right in their own eyes. One of the interesting things that happens in this entire section, chapter 17 to 18, nobody has a name. It's the opposite of cheers. In cheers, everybody knows your name. Here in this passage, nobody has a name. It's a Levite, his wife, her mother, a man, some people, Nobody has a name in this passage. Uh, one of my former colleagues, Don Hudson, uh, wrote an article. Uh, the name of the article is Living in the Land of Epitaphs. It's all about Judges chapter 19. And he talks about the function of anonymity. Why doesn't anyone have a name? He highlights two things. One is universal application. It really kind of opens the door to kind of say, this was it for everybody. This wasn't just one guy, one girl, one dad. This was kind of true of everybody. The whole country was full of abusers and, and people being victimized. But more importantly, what he highlights is the loss of personhood. No one is known as an individual. They've lost their own individual identities because they've just become part of something else. And humanity has been lost. It's like these people aren't even humans anymore. They're not humans enough to even have a name. No one has a name. This is how far down it has slid. Uh, 
No one has a name anymore. So as I said, the passage is going to have three movements. There's going to be um, the incident, the overreaction, and then the response to that, okay? And the incident is, is really Sodom and Gomorrah revisited. Um, this is what's going on with the Israelites is exactly what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. When God's people live with the world's values, regular life begins to contain unimaginable evil. And that's what happens in this passage. I'm I'm warning you, this passage has unimaginable evil. (laughs) Horrible treatment of women, sexual perversions, sexual violence, horrible violence, dismemberment. And that's what happens when God's people begin to embrace the the world's values, which says, I'm the king. And I'll do whatever's right in my own eyes. I saw the commercial last night, our story last night. Little girl, six years old, innocent as she could be. But what she was saying was, I just want to be me. I'm going to do what I want to do. I was like, oh my gosh, she's got the message. Do what is right in your own eyes. (laughs) Del Ralph Davis continues to set up this passage. He says, the writer wants you to view Judges 19 this way. Yes, that's right. He says, it sounds exactly like Genesis 19. It's the Sodom connection. Daniel Block calls this, it's the Canaanization of Israel. Israel looks like Canaan. The people of God are acting like Sodom and Gomorrah. This is no longer those people over there. This is us people in here. We've begun to embrace the values of the world. As I get ready to read the passage, Kenneth Way sets up some themes. Just pay attention to these going on. Israelite autonomy equips as God's kingship. They do what they want instead of submitting to God as king. They are looking like the Canaanites. The Levitical spiritual leaders, guys like me, the spiritual leaders in the people of God are corrupt, and they invert the Torah and make it teach what they want it to teach. Murderous acts characterize Israelite life in both the villages and in the sanctuary. Everywhere. It's it's violence everywhere. And women are exploited and sacrificed by depraved men. Here's the story. Now a Levite, reminder, a spiritual leader, who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine pause for a moment. A concubine is a secondary wife, sometimes taken as a slave, sometimes taken just to um, uh, produce more offspring, but it's a secondary wife. They, They were prohibited. You weren't supposed to have one. A Levite certainly shouldn't have one, but he's got one. Nothing's right in these passages. This Levite took a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. Perhaps she got angry with him. We're going to see in just one second. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. Something happens between the two of them, and it's hard to understand. Like most things in this passage, it's unclear what's going on. There's a lot of stuff that you're you're reading this, and you're just going, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. This may be that she was unfaithful to him. The word used, zana, means to be a harlot. It means to be a prostitute. Maybe she she left him, and she um, she was a streetwalker. That's what the word zana means, and it could be that. But, but, but her, her husband and her father's reaction to her seems like that's not what's going on here. It may be that she, and there's another word zana that means got angry. She got upset with him. By the way, given his character and the rest of the story, that makes a lot of sense. That she was mad, she was upset with how she's being treated, and she goes back to her dad, who's no better. 
But something happens between the two of them. And by the way, remember, this, this conflict is going to eventually dominoes fall and result in civil war. After she had been there with her dad for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. The, the irony is so huge here. The, literally, the phrase says, to speak to her heart gently. He does anything except that. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. That was a well-off guy, by the way. He had two cars. Um, and she took him into her parents' home. And when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. Again, I don't know exactly what's going on, but it's a good time. Three days, they're having a party. <laughs> By the way, I, I almost put this slide after every verse of Scripture. Of course, this is absurd. There are many things wrong with this picture. <laughs> this is true of almost everything I'm going to read today. Um, she's left the guy for some reason, gone to dad's house. She's at dad's house. The old husband comes and dad says, hey, let's party. (laughs) It's crazy. On the fourth day, they got up early and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat. Then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, please stay the night and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, refresh yourself. Wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. I I don't know exactly what's happening with dad here, but he's trying to keep the son-in-law around and they're having a good time while they're doing it. Um, it, it. It is probably setting something up. Bob Chisholm says this, what is the literary purpose of this first scene? The answer becomes clear by the end of the chapter. This folksy, realistic introduction to the story stresses the father's hospitable attitude. He simply would not allow the Levite to leave until he was adequately fed and rested. His hospitality will serve as a literary foil to the treatment the Levi receives in Gibeah, for it places the hideous deed of the men of Gibeah against the backdrop of the societal idea. I guess what he's saying here is he's treated well here in in his father-in-law's home. He's treated well here. And that is the total opposite of what he's going to get, where he's going to end up. He's trying to get to the house of the Lord, and that's not going to happen. Then when the man, with his concubine and his servant, got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day's nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddle donkeys, and his concubine. Again, I don't know why another night wasn't okay. He stayed there a bunch of nights. Why was a fifth night not okay? Um, But the interesting thing that happens here is it's already partway through the day. Um, To get where they want to go, he's going to have to get up early. Um, They started going to Jebus. That's uh, Jerusalem, going to become important in a minute here. Uh, Jebus, at this point, is not controlled by the Israelites. It's controlled by the Jebusites. That's why it's Jebus. The Jebusites are the ones who are there. It's going to be David in his reign, uh, 80 years later, that is going to conquer um, Jerusalem and, and take it over. But at this point, it's inhabited by um, some other a Canaanite tribe, the Jebusites. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, 
We won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We'll go on to Gibeah. This was the wrong choice. Nothing's right in this story. He added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. A couple things are going wrong here. Um, Lawson Younger highlights one. Ironically, by seeking to avoid the potential inhospitable, in, inhospitality of a foreign city, Jebus, the Levite and his party suffer the very fate or even, and even worse, in Gibeah, the Israelite city. They're trying to say, we won't stay in a non-Israelite city. We want to stay in the Israelite city. They would have been way better off in the non-Israelite city. But no, they make their way to Jebus. <laughs> They're sitting in the city square, and, and no one comes to take care of them, which is, um, in Israel, if you go into a city and you don't have a place to stay, you go to the square, and hospitality is really big in the Middle East, someone would invite you to their home. Um, uh, we have some uh, people in our, in our church who have been in the Middle East, and, and they will tell you this is very true. Um, one person in particular I'm thinking of uh, has traveled to the Middle East and gone into cities and just gone to the square knowing that somebody's going to invite them home for the night. Um, That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites. So this guy's not a Benjamite. The fact that they're Benjamites is going to become really critical next week. But this old guy comes in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? He shows up, he sees a guy here, and he realizes nobody from Gibeah is going to ask this guy home. So he's going to offer him. He answered, we're on our way from Bethlehem and Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I've been to Bethlehem and Judah to go get my concubine, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. By the way, the house of the Lord at this point is in Shiloh. If he would have gotten up early in the morning, he could have made it there. But he didn't get up early enough in the morning. He can't make it there. They're having to stop somewhere else. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder, important. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants. Me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. We got our own food. We're fine here in the square. We're going to be okay. We don't need anything. We've got straw and fodder, a little bit of food for for our animals. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Look at the last line. We don't need anything. (laughs) Everything's wrong with this story. (sighs) Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. He already had food for his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. He doesn't need this, but the big thing in there in the warning is, don't you stay in this city square. You're not going to be safe here. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him couple things I have to address here. First of all, these guys are called um, wicked men of the city. Literally, they're sons of Belial. Sons of Belial is the, the, the liars, which clearly sons of Satan. Um, people who are characterized as sons of Belial in the Old Testament, they're murderers, rapists, false witnesses, corrupt priests, drunks, uh, just ungrateful, un, 
very selfish people who don't know the way of the Lord. That's, that's who a son of Belial is. And these people are there pounding on the door. They're pounding on the door and they're saying, bring out the guy. We want to have sex with him. Pause and make another application. This is about homosexuality, okay? This is about, at the end of a book that is degenerating, that's getting worse and worse, that is climaxing with, can you believe it got this bad? The illustration they're using is a gang of guys who are showing up saying, we want to, um, we want to have sex with this guy. People who are going to argue and say, no, the Bible's not against homosexuality. They're going to try to argue this is about inhospitality. These guys were just not being hospitable. That's the problem. They didn't welcome him in the city square. If inhospitality was the issue, then we would have stopped the story with their inhospitality in the city square. This is about homosexuality, which is chosen as an example of it has gotten this bad. Now, there's grace for that. We need to be loving for people who struggle with all those issues. We need to um, love them well with the love of Christ while not affirming their behavior. We need to love, we need to respect, but we need to call sin, sin, and it is sin. Romans 1 puts it in the list of, yes, this is how bad it got for that nation, and it's how chaos is erupting. But that's not the only sin in the passage. I mean, you've got a messed up marriage, you've got a father who's horrible, and the sin is going to get worse. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. <laughs> don't, don't, this outrageous thing you're about to do, don't do that. Here's a better idea. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. Literally, the phrase is, do whatever's right in your own eyes. Oh, my gosh. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. That would be outrageous, but his, my virgin daughter and his secondary wife, oh, you can have them. Do whatever's right in your own eyes. Have at it. But the men would not listen to them. So the men, I don't know which men, took this man, took his concubine, and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. Here's what happens. <laughs> they want somebody, they want the man, they want homosexuality, they want to, to rape the man. The man and the host, the old man, um, they say, hey, I've got a virgin daughter and a concubine. It seems like real quickly what happens is the Levite grabs the girl and shoves her outside. Lawson Younger, when they refuse to listen to the old man, it's the Levite who seizes his concubine and hands her over to the horde. By the way, he seizes her at the house, he seizes her here, throws her outside, and then the horde seizes her, this idea of she's being seized all over the place. Violence is everywhere. Obviously, this selfish act in the extreme saves him from the horde, but reveals the depths of depravity in his heart. He's doing what's right in his own eyes to save his own skin. That'll happen again in chapter 20. <laughs> Barry Webb. What is acceptable to him is alternative to wickedness and folly. What the, the alternative, he says wickedness and folly is this homosexual game rape. 
But what's acceptable to him is doing what is good in one's own eyes, gaining rape of a defenseless woman. The mob acts as creatures of appetite rather than reason and settle for immediate gratification. I mean, this, this story just gets worse. <laughs> Don't do this outrageous thing. Here's my virgin daughter and his wife. Here, do whatever you want. They rape her all night long. When the master got up, When the master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. (laughs) He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Oh, my word. (laughs) The drama, her hand is, is on the threshold. She's trying to get back in. Barry Webb says, the expression, he got up, opened the door of that house, and went on his way, is chilling in what it implies by its sheer ordinariness. He's just going to go on. Oh, well, they took her through the night. Mary Evans highlights this. What we have here is a picture of just what depths this community had sunk to and how far they were from living as God's people. These kind of things were going on. Brief application, Kenneth Way says this, as men increasingly wander from God, they increasingly dishonor women. The lack of strong male leadership, and not violent, horrible, but protective and honoring. By the way, guys, do you know why we have a Father's Day slideshow? It's because the women send the pictures in. You know why we don't have a Mother's Day slideshow? (laughs) Man, we should be stepping up. I know a Father's Day message should maybe be encouraging and pat you on the back and say you're great. This message is telling you, step up, be the man you're... Don't be like this father. Don't be like this husband. Here's the climax. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent them to all the areas of Israel. Of course he would. This is absurd. Nothing is right in this story. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen and done. Not since the days of the Israelites come up out of Egypt. Just imagine. What, we must do something, so speak up. And they're going to do something next week. It's genocide is what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm just going to read the first part of this by Dale Ralph Davis. Our writer also touches on the scope of Israel's wickedness. It's not confined to Gibeah's city limits. Everybody's wicked. Everybody's messed up. Here's where I'd go with an application from this message. In the past, the Israelites look like the Canaanites. Sodom and Gomorrah is eclipsed by Israel. What's going on in Israel is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. For us... God's people often look just like the world. And you know what? Las Vegas is eclipsed by Sunday morning. The stuff going on in churches today is worse than Las Vegas. (laughs) Because it's it's about what we want. It's about doing what's right in our own eyes. It's not honoring God and, and exalting him and putting him at the center. Alan Ross says this, If you get mixed up with the world the way the world thinks, there's nothing but disaster ahead for you. This is not idolatry per se. It's just beginning to think the world the way the world around you thinks with yourself at the center of everything you do. 
It is, going back to the beginning, it is rejecting God is my king, and it's saying, because God's not my king, I'm going to be king for a while, and I'll do what's right in my own eyes. When you do that, there's nothing but disaster in front of you. So the next steps for this week and next week are going to be the same. God's people can do horrible things, but not without consequences. And there's a limit to the patience of God. We will see that next week. And the challenge is to live countercultural, a countercultural life of fidelity to God and love other people, not put yourself at the center. Love other people, even those who are struggling with issues that are very, very difficult. Michelle Knight has a, has a great article on this passage. She concludes in two different ways. God is silent in Judges 19, definitely so, or is he? Because God doesn't rescue the woman dies. She goes on to say this, while God is silent in the narrative world of Judges 19, the Lord inspired and crafted all the rest of the scriptures and superintended their formation and reception and guides the contemporary reader in the interpretive process. God is not silent about these issues. God doesn't say this is okay. Back in Romans 1, here's what we real, read happens. They exchanged, and God gave them over. They exchanged, God gave them over. They, the men and women, exchanged, and God gave them over. God's not silent. He will give you over to your own passions. If you reject him as king, do what's right in your own eyes, you'll suffer the consequences for it. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who's forever to be praised. Amen. Here's what happens. When we lose sight of God as our king and we do what is right in our own eyes, we'll blur sexuality, we'll obscure our identity, and all hell will break loose. And that is where we are. We've lost sight of God and we have blurred our sexuality so that rapid onset gender dysphoria and autogenophilia are just the tip of the iceberg. And we've obscured our identity. We no longer look like people made in the image of God. And all hell has broken loose in our world and in our churches. And the solution to that is to put God back on the throne and don't do what's right in your eyes. Do what's right in his eyes. 